morning, everybody. How are you doing today? Good? We got some goods. We got some goods. Anybody doing great today? Martin's doing great. I'm, I'm happy to see that. Uh, my name is Andrew. Like Pastor Rick said, I lead this church location here. I'm so excited to get into God's Word today. We got a lot to talk about. I'm really excited. I know that there's a game later on, so I'll try and get you guys out of here like just before then. To, to be able to get home and get that game on. I'm just playing. But uh, I'm a little extra excited today because in addition to getting into the book of Genesis, into God's word, we have something special to celebrate uh, as a church family. So uh, just this past week, Scott and Catherine Bradley had their beautiful baby boy. Let me introduce you to James Jonathan Bradley. Born at Winchester Hospital on February 7th. Six pounds, 10 ounces, about 19 inches. Mom and baby are doing good. They're back home. Dad's doing good too, I think. Uh, but they don't really ask dad how he's doing. So, But uh, the one thing I wanted to say about this is that even as Pastor Rick talks about loving one another and that the world would know that we follow Jesus because of that, I think one of the ways, just a beautiful way to love people, especially people who have gone through a huge life transition, no kids to first child, uh, is to just bless them with food. So Mark and Liz, can you guys raise your hand? Mark and Liz over there, they uh, wanted to say, hey, we want to bless them. Can we set up a meal train uh, to just bring meals to Scott and Catherine? And they live in Woburn. And if you would be uh, willing to serve and love them just with a, with a meal, uh, they would be immensely blessed by that. You can just talk to Mark and Liz over there, uh, and they will get you guys set up with that. So as Pastor Rick said, we're going to be getting into the book of Genesis this morning. We're looking at the life of Joseph. And as he said, this is the key verse for this series. It's at the very end of the book of Genesis, sort of the end of, of his story. And this is what it says. You intended to harm me. This is Joseph speaking to his brothers. He said, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. To accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Now, I want to take one second to recap last week, just in case maybe you weren't here. Maybe this week was like super hectic and you just need a little refresher. That's fine. Last week, we were in Genesis 37, where we get first introduced to Joseph. And he is one of 12. It's a cheaper by the dozen situation there in Jacob's house. And Joseph's brothers cannot stand him. They do not like him at all. It says they can't even say a good word to him. And in that chapter in 37, Joseph's brothers plot murder against him and then opt for trafficking him into slavery. That's a better option uh, for them. And that totally upends Joseph's life. And that's sort of where the chapter ends off. We're skipping over 38. 38 is not really about Joseph. It's about his brother Judah uh, and I believe, if you're interested in learning about that chapter, this Wednesday, there's, uh, we're beginning also a class on the book of Genesis. We'll be looking through that. And so if you want to learn more about Genesis 38, you can join us in Burlington on Wednesday night uh, for that class. They'll be talking about Genesis 38. But we pick up on that story where Joseph is sold into slavery in Genesis 39. So I'm going to pray, and then we are going to read this story together and unpack it. Heavenly Father, 
Would you give us ears to hear this morning from you? Would you give us eyes to see where you are at work? Would you give us hearts to receive what it is that you have for us? And would you give us spirits to respond in faith in the ways that you are leading us and guiding us? Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so Genesis 39. If you have your Bibles open, we also have the verses on the screen. My Bible is the NIV, just in case you're wondering. It might be a little different from the way that yours uh, reads. So this is how it goes. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian, who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, brought him, bought him excuse me, from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered, and he lived in the land, uh, he lived in the house of his Egyptian master, and when his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household, and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and entrusted uh, all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left jo in Joseph's care everything he had. And with Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now, Joseph was well-built and handsome. It's a good description. Something I could, uh, we could all inspire to. <laughs> and after a while, his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns, he has entrusted to my care. No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day, he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and run out of the house, she called the household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. Then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. But while Joseph was there in the prison, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness and granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison. And he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success 
in whatever he did. It's a roller coaster of a chapter, right? <laughs> Some ups and downs. We're, we're going to unpack, I think, this morning, as we get into this, what I, what I hope we can do is, is understand a little bit more from this chapter what is temptation? What, what's really going on there when we feel temptation? And to start to understand how we're supposed to go about dealing with that. How do we resist temptation? How do we overcome temptation? And then see how we can start to apply those principles to our own lives. So it takes Joseph like over a week to get to Egypt. He gets sold into slavery and the Ishmaelites carry him with this caravan. It takes him a long time. He's got a long time to think about what's going on. And he finds himself belonging, once he's there, to a high-ranking official, a really important guy in Egypt. And it does not take Potiphar long to recognize Joseph's leadership potential. And this is a familiar place for Joseph because the same thing happens with his dad. Jacob recognizes the potential in Joseph and sort of puts, brings him as sort of an attendant. And that's why he gets his, you know, coat of many colors or the, you know, it's not technically many colors, just more like long sleeves. But again, this happens. Joseph becomes an attendant. Potiphar recognizes that he's got leadership potential. And this sort of best case scenario does not last very long. He's not able to enjoy that for very long because here comes Mrs. Potiphar. Scripture says day after day is tempting him. Day after day, she is trying to get him to do what she wants. And day after day, Joseph has to face and resist this temptation. And his faithfulness, he, he, he chooses to maintain his integrity. His faithfulness to God lands him the sweet, sweet reward of a prison cell. So he's riding high, he's facing this challenge, he overcomes, and boom, prison jail, all over the map. And when we start to look at what's going on with this temptation, I think the place that we need to start is to take a look and try and understand why is it that Joseph refuses Mrs. Potiphar? Why is it that he says no day after day? It was not uncommon in that day, in that culture, for masters to have relations with their slaves. Slaves are property. They do what the masters say. And so this kind of relationship is not totally unheard of. It's not uncommon. And so Joseph's not refusing because this is like culturally taboo. At this point in the life of God and his people, there is also no law. Moses gets the law from God hundreds of years later. And so Joseph doesn't have like a list of do's and don'ts that he would say, she's telling me to do this, but God says no, so I'm not going to do it. He's not refusing her because God said not to, because he hasn't said that yet. And I think he's not even refusing her because Potiphar said so. We, we, we get him in, in these verses to say, hey, Potiphar has uh, only withheld one thing from me, and that's you. But then he goes on to say something interesting. Did you catch it when we read through in verse 9? He says, How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against 
how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? He's, he's, not, he's not concerned about sinning against Potiphar. He's not saying no because he doesn't want to upset his master. He's saying no because of something related to his relationship with God. Do you see that? Joseph grounds his refusal in his relationship with God. And the word sin here, I'm awful at pronouncing Hebrew words, but I think it's something like chata. Can you say that? Can you try? I want to see. Okay, we got some good ones. This, this word, it's, it's, it's a very sort of root word, a fundamental word that sort of means to, to miss the goal, to miss the mark, to, to go off course. And, and what Joseph is in effect saying here is he's saying, I have a goal in my relationship with God that if I were to do this, I would miss that goal. I would go off track. I would go off course, and I can't do that. My, my relationship with God, my goals in my relationship with God, they're too important. We already see at the start of this chapter, it says it two times, it's very clear that God was with Joseph. But this, this verse, when he says, how can I sin against God? It's sort of our first hint also that Joseph was with God. There was a two-way relationship there. And that's what grounds his refusal. That's his why. And this story teaches us that there's more going on in temptation than just this person wants this, and this is being offered, and this is what I would get in return. What we see is that behind every temptation is the enemy's intention to draw us away from God's presence and participation in his kingdom. Joseph has this perspective. He's saying, like, you know, Mrs. Potiphar wants me to do this, but, but this is going to cause me, this is going to draw me away from God's presence and participation in what he's doing behind temptation, that's what's behind every temptation, you name it, whatever temptation you face in your life, behind that is an enemy. There's a person who is against you, and they are actively trying to pull you away from God, pull you out of participation in what he's doing. That's what temptation is. And so, for Joseph, staying close to God and participating in what he's doing, it's far too important. To, to, to say, man, if this is what I have to give up to do that, no way, no deal. Day after day, it's going to be the same answer. And I love what he does, this, this verse 10. After this initial refusal, he does two things. It says, though she spoke to him day after day, he refused to go to bed with her, and he refused to even be with her or even be around her. These two things, we can learn so much about how to deal with temptation in our own lives from these two things. To me, it boils down to willpower and it boils down to boundaries. Joseph engages both of those as he tries to deal with this temptation that's in front of him. And like we said, Joseph is firmly rooted in why he is saying no. He's firmly rooted in his why. And that gives him the... the sort of the strength of will to say no. And some of you here, you've faced temptation in your life and all you have sort of as a, as a why behind refusing is like a vague sense that it's not good for you or a general understanding that God doesn't want you to do that. If that's you, it's, it's so beneficial for you and your life with God to understand why you say no. 
when you have a really clear and compelling reason for why not to do that thing, that will empower you to say no when that temptation comes. And we know some stuff about willpower today much more scientifically. Joseph sort of only experiences this anecdotally. But what we know about willpower is that it's a finite resource. It's a finite resource. It is not unlimited. Our willpower, each one of us, it's sort of like a phone battery. Although it probably runs out a lot faster than a phone battery. As you use it, it ticks down. Every time we exercise our will, especially when there's something that we have a desire for and we say no to, it ticks down our willpower. And maybe it's a stressful day, and by the end of the day, you're, you're all out. Like you have no, no strength of will left. Maybe it's by lunchtime, you're like done. Maybe you got a crazy family at home, and like before you even got out the door to get the kids to school, you're like, I've got nothing left in the tank. Willpower is so important because it roots us in why we're saying no. It, it helps us see clearly what we're giving up. But Joseph knows that that's not enough. He knows his willpower alone is not enough to, to deal with this temptation. And so he establishes boundaries. We can go back from that slide. We'll come back to that slide in a second. He establishes boundaries. Because as, as and, and this is important for us because Willpower is very much romanticized in, in Hollywood right now. A lot of the stories that we love are about like the, the hero who against all odds just won't give it, won't give in, won't give up, won't compromise his integrity. You know, we have this like Captain America, he's always gonna do the right thing. And it's just, he's just, he's just got it inside him. He's got like this infinite source of willpower. And we start to believe that that's, that's how we deal with temptation in our lives. And, and I, th- I want you to think about last time you, f- you gave in to a temptation. What, what are the things that you tell yourself afterwards? What kinds of things do you say to yourself? Say, next time I'll, I'll, I'll try harder. Next time I'll be stronger. I just wasn't trying hard enough. That's willpower language. That's willpower language. If we rely on our willpower alone, we're gonna, you get stuck in that cycle. So Joseph establishes some boundaries. He reorganizes his life so he can continue to do his work, but minimize his interaction with Mrs. Potiphar. He doesn't even want to be around her, it says. And that's something important for us. If, If you don't have boundaries around the temptation that you face, you need to start putting some of those in place. Bring some, somebody you trust into your life and say, hey, this is what I struggle with. Can you help me think through, like, what are some good ways for me to, to protect myself against that? Because when you set up a boundary, it takes less willpower for you to maintain a boundary than it does for you to resist a temptation. I'm gonna say that again. It takes less willpower for you to maintain a boundary than it does to resist a temptation. It is much more difficult to say, I'm not going to eat Oreos when the Oreos are in the house. It's a lot easier to not eat Oreos when you don't go down the junk food aisle at the grocery store. If that's your boundary, we're not going down aisle 12. Resisting that temptation is much easier. That's how boundaries work. So what is your temptation? What's the boundary you need to put in place? 
it's easier to resist the temptation to overspend. If you get rid of your credit cards, if you establish a budget, it's easier to resist the farther away you are from the temptation. Even for me, one of the things that I struggle with, one of my temptations is lust. And I have put content blockers on every single one of my devices. I, I have ordered my life. I try my best to not go to the gym during peak hours just because I want to put distance between myself and the temptation. And it's easier for me to avoid lust by choosing not to do, go to the gym than it is to go there and try and like keep my head down and like stay so focused that's all my willpower just used up. So what is it? What is the boundary that you need to put in place? What is God telling you there? And I, I really like verse 11. It teaches us something really important. It's, it, it specifically says in verse 11 that on this day, the household servants were not in the house. Does that strike you as a little odd? The household servants were not in the house? Jo to me, it just suggests like Joseph sort of setting up and saying, hey, even if I'm gonna have to be around her, like let's make sure there are other people around. That's a great boundary. If you're like, man, I know there's no way for me to, avoid this thing, but at least I can bring people around me that will support me in, in that situation. And so boundaries and willpower, they work together to help us resist temptation. You can, you can put it up now. It says this, willpower and boundaries can help you resist temptation, but they are not quite enough to overcome it. Willpower and boundaries can help you resist temptation, but they're not enough to overcome it. And I want to illustrate this to you with uh, a volunteer. So I talked to Martin and I asked him to come up here. Uh, when Martin's not around, we call him Muscle Martin. This is a 25-pound dumbbell. And this is your temptation. Here you go. Now, I want you to just think about your willpower. Muster every drop of will and strength and internal fortitude. I want you to bring it all together. And every time that weight goes from down to up, that's, that's him resisting a temptation, okay? Every time it goes down for up, he is saying no. He is refusing Mrs. Potiphar. He is saying no to that thing. So go ahead. All your willpower. He's saying no. He's saying no. He's saying no. He knows why he's saying no. He's saying no. He's not giving up. He's saying no. He's saying no. He's saying no. Keep going. He's saying no. He's got a lot of willpower. He's saying no. He told me 20, so I, I lost count, but he's saying no. He's saying no. He's saying no. Okay, he's saying no. Come on, keep saying no. Keep saying no. All right, all right. That's awesome. That's awesome. Now, keep saying no. Keep saying no. I'm going to keep talking. <clears throat> What's going to happen eventually? No, 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 no. Back here, back here, back here. What's going to happen eventually? What's going to happen? He's going to run out of bicep power. He's going to run out of willpower. Keep going. Come on. Say no. All right. 
One more. You got it. Oh, he's pulling out his earbuds. All right. You can put it down. You can put it down. Eventually, his arm's going to give out, right? Eventually, that willpower is going to run out. And the only way to get it back is to put it down and let your arm rest. But he didn't, when you put the weight down, he's not resisting the temptation. And so what do we do when the willpower is not enough? We bring in some boundaries. We use a 15-pound dumbbell instead of a 25-pound dumbbell. I'm, I'm just playing. I'm not going to make him do that. But <clears throat> when, we, when we put distance between ourselves and the temptation, it's easier to resist. It takes less willpower. So he's going to be able to do more reps with the 15 than he is with the 25. But it's the same problem, right? Same problem. Eventually, I could put a one-pound weight in his hand. He could be curling his microphone, okay? I don't know how long it might take, two hours, three hours. Eventually, his arm is going to run out, and he needs to give it down. Willpower and boundaries alone, they're not enough for us to overcome. They can help us resist. In good boundaries, you can get a lot of reps if you just have that one-pound weight but eventually they're going to run out. And so we need something more. You can put it down. Thank you, Martin. Can you give Martin some, some encouragement? I, I don't want you to get me wrong. We are in this house. We are pro willpower and we are pro boundaries. But when it comes to overcoming temptation, not just resisting, but actually really, truly overcoming, we need something else. We need something different. We need something more. And I think we can really get a picture of that in this passage. And we're going to get to that in just a second. But th this, there's, a, there's another person in Scripture who gets tempted. And I, th I just want to look at it really quick because it can help us understand a little bit about what's going on with the curl and the weights. And that other person is... Jesus himself. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus gets tempted by the devil in the desert, in the wilderness. And it, there's this very interesting phrase at the end that I want to read for you. It says this, When the devil had finished all his tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Until an opportune time. You know, in the book of 1 Peter, Peter describes the devil like a, a roaring lion prowling around for someone to devour. You know what lions are really good at? Hunting. They are really good at staying just out of sight until the opportune time. At staying just out of, out of sight until the moment comes and you're vulnerable and they attack. Eventually a time will come where your willpower is, is, is depleted, your boundaries get overrun, just like Joseph in this house, in this story. No, nobody's around. The boundaries overrun. It's just him and Mrs. Potiphar. You know, maybe it's been a tough time. He's, she's been wearing him down over time. What happens in that moment? We need something more. You see, in, in the, the, the book that, or the, not the book, the people that this book was written to, the book of Genesis was written to the Hebrew people, the descendants of Joseph and his brothers. And in that time, there is, there, it, it, was, it would have been so clear, the answer to the question, what will help me overcome sin? What will help me overcome? If willpower and boundaries alone are not enough, what will help me overcome? It would have been so clear to them. It's a little bit tougher for us because it's a literary device. 
It's in the structure and the organization of this chapter. What Moses does here that would have stuck out like a sore thumb to his early readers, his first readers, is called an inclusio. Can you say inclusio? I don't think that's the original name of it. It's just a name that we gave it so that we can know what we're talking about. An inclusio is, is, is the two heavy things on a bookshelf that keep the books from falling over. An inclusio are brackets, and they say, hey, uh, you know, I'm going to put something here, I'm going to put something here, and everything in the middle, th- these brackets are how you understand it. These brackets are how you make sense of what's going on here. And so this is the inclusio in Genesis 39. This is really crazy when you see it. I don't know if you can read, but at the very beginning, we get this phrase, the Lord was with Joseph, verse 2. At the end, we get the same phrase, the Lord was with him. At the beginning, we get the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did. Shows back up at the end, copy-paste. The Lord was with him and gave him success in whatever he did. He finds favor in Potiphar's eyes. He finds favor in the warden's eyes. He gets put in charge of everything in Potiphar's house. He gets put in charge of everything in the prison. Moses is like flashing neon signs saying, hey, you want to understand how you can overcome temptation? Here it is. God's presence. The Lord was with Joseph. It was the Lord who gave him success. It was the Lord who gave him favor. It was the Lord who who put him in this position of prominence. God is the one who overcomes temptation. God's presence was the key. It was God that gave him success. And this is how we are able to overcome temptation in our lives as well. That situation is on display here in this chapter. The way that it works, the way that it works is that, how do I say this? Like Joseph didn't overcome temptation because he was a great guy. He overcame temptation because he was stuck in God's presence. Giving up God's presence was, was a, a cost far too high than he was willing to pay. But what happens when you're in God's presence is you start to change. And this is really where the magic happens. And this, this, this becomes clear in this chapter, but it becomes even clearer at the end. Remember, Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery. At the very end of Genesis, chapter 50, Joseph now holds all the cards. He's got all the power, all the ability to exercise revenge on his brothers. A temptation, an opportune time. Nothing to get in his way. And Joseph instead forgives them. Instead, for, and it's not even hard for him. Like, you go back to that passage, it's not even hard. He's like, are you kidding me? Like, I, like who am I to do that? Like, God meant this for good. And he, he, like, it says he reassured them with, like, with many kind words. Over the span of Joseph's life, over, this, over that time where God was with him and he was with God, and they were sharing this presence, God was turning him into a person who is not vengeful. See how that works? As you spend time in God's presence, he turns you into a person for whom that temptation is no longer inviting and enticing. The process of spiritual maturity and growing in in holiness 
is that you start to lose a taste for all of those things because you've been in God's presence. What, what happens is we start to look more and more like Jesus, the one who resisted every temptation, who overcame every temptation, who was batting a thousand. Your love for God can give you the willpower to resist, if that's your why. Your love for God can give you the willpower to resist. God's love for you can give you power to totally change your life. And that's, that, those are two very different things. And so when it comes to overcoming temptation, boundaries, good, willpower, good, God's presence is the ultimate thing. Over, temptation is overcome by abiding in God's transforming presence. If you really are serious about getting that temptation kicked, about getting that thing out of your life, this is the way to do it. Not instead of willpower and boundaries, but this is the thing that you need to be doing, abiding in God's presence. Psalm 37, 4, a verse that I come back to a lot, says this. It says, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. As a little kid, you read that, and you're like, that's sweet. Like, I just, just like, pray and have, like, you know, a good attitude, and God will give me, you know, like, a unicorn. Like, if I delight in him, he'll just give me whatever I ask for. The desires of my heart. That's not what this verse is saying. It's, it's saying, hey, when you delight yourself in the Lord, when you're in his presence, he's in your presence, and you guys are just there together and just enjoying it and loving that, the desires of your heart, he will give you new desires. He will give you a new heart. David in the Psalms said, create in me a clean heart, God. Renew a steadfast spirit in me. When you, when you delight yourself in the Lord, when you get into God's presence, he starts to change the things that you want and to change the things that you don't want. Abiding in God changes who we are. And this is where I want to sort of land the plane this morning, and I can invite the worship team to come back up. We need to be changed. The person you are is not built to overcome the temptations that you face. Underneath it all, we have brokenness in our life. We have sin in our hearts. The person you are is not built to overcome those temptations. It is so, so important that you get into God's presence so that you can become the person that God's calling you to be. And you might ask, how do we do that? And there are a lot of ways. At their most basic level, we call them the spiritual disciplines. Have you ever heard that phrase before, spiritual disciplines? It's a category of practices that followers of Jesus do in order to intentionally get themselves into God's presence. So we have... You know, a couple weeks ago, we had a, night, a day of fasting and prayer. Fasting and prayer are two spiritual disciplines. Those are things that we engage in to practically put ourselves and our spirits into God's presence. There's another discipline that I think has largely fallen off the map and I think is incredibly valuable for followers of Jesus in the 21st century. And that is the discipline of solitude. We live in a day and age where you can be alone and not be in solitude. And we live in a day where you can be in community and not be connected to other people. Because of our devices, we are so distracted. 
And those distractions, they, they make their way into our spirits and our spiritual lives. And we so often miss what God is doing. How, how many times have you tried to get before God and like pray and not get distracted? And then like five seconds later, you're like thinking about, did I, you know, remember to pick up the kids? And do I, you know, do we have enough food in the fridge for dinner? Like who, have you, you tried that? Just put your hand up. Have you got distracted? Have you been trying to connect with the Lord? Yeah. Solitude is a practice that helps us sort of zero back in. And you don't have to go for like, you know, before Jesus' temptation, he goes into the wilderness for 40 days. He's in solitude for 40 days. You don't have to go into the wilderness for 40 days. You can take five minutes. You can take 10 minutes out of your day. And as you exercise in this practice, you can stretch it out. But this is, this is the guideline, and I, I really want to encourage you. If you are dealing with a temptation in your life that you feel like you are not enough for, try solitude. Try it and just see what God does. If you have a temptation in your life that you feel like you do have a handle on and you are enough for, I might check yourself a little bit and try solitude. See what God will do. See how God will transform you as you get into his presence. This is, for me, this is what solitude looks like. You get up, you get to a place where there are no external distractions. If that, that means putting your phone in another room, I know for some people this is really, really challenging. A good, a good place in a pinch for some solitude is in a car. Just get to a quiet place, no external distractions. And then, the second step, which is, for me, the most difficult, is to release expectations. To think about, you know, sometimes we go in with all of these, like, God's going to, like, blow my mind, and, you know, everything's going to be amazing. Just let it go. Let it happen. Whatever comes, let it happen. It's not about results, and it's not about you doing something. It's about you being with God. That's all that's important in that time. And then thirdly, we need to return from internal distractions. Oftentimes when our mind... Uh, w when our bodies go still, our minds start to come alive with tons of energy. You try and sit still and focus, that's like the hardest time when your thoughts are just racing. And so in that place, just return from those internal distractions. Just come back to a place. Sometimes it's helpful to have a thought. And if, if you are interested in practicing this, I would suggest that when you feel distracted in solitude, to come back to this simple prayer that Jesus says, and he teaches his disciples to do. Thy will be done. You get into solitude and you get distracted, just say, thy will be done. Say it, say it again. Just come back to that place. Look, this is all, this is all I'm here for, for you, thy will to be done. And then to just rest there. Don't feel pressure. Don't feel like you have to do something or be different or get changed. Like, just rest. God loves us into people of love. That's how he works. And so as we worship, I would just invite you, as we sing, to consider, first of all, do you know why you are resisting temptation? Do you have a clear reason why? Second of all, do you have good boundaries in place? Things that can help you not expend all of your willpower right away. And thirdly, do you have ways and practices in your life 
where you can get into God's presence without anything else going on and allow him to work on your heart. Allow him to, to love you into a person of love. Allow him to love you into a person for whom that temptation is no longer interesting at all. I'm gonna pray and then let's, let's worship God together. Jesus, I thank you for grace. I thank you that God so loved the world that he gave his son, that anyone who could believe in him, anyone who would place their faith in him would not perish, but have eternal life. And even Jesus, as you defined eternal life in John 17, you said that they would know you, that they would know me, and that they would know you. Jesus, you don't hold our past sins against us. You don't hold our future sins against us. And you have love overwhelming in your heart for us. And Lord, as we face situations where we are tempted, places where the enemy might try and pull us away from you and pull us away from participating in what you're doing, God, I pray that we would just come back to your presence even in that moment, to just offer up a prayer of thy will be done, to put our trust in you. God, our will, our willpower runs out. It, 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 every time we try and use it, it completely it, it runs out. Thanks be to God, thanks be to you, Lord, that when, when we use our will to surrender to you, God, it's refreshing. It's not exhausting. When we use our will to just, to, to say thy will be done, when we take our will and we submit it to your will, God, we're not, we don't walk away exhausted from that. Thank you. And Lord, I pray over, over the period of time that you've allotted to us, over days and weeks and months and years, would you love us into people who overcome? Would you love us into people of love? Jesus, would you transform us by your amazing presence and your overwhelming love? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship God together.